We all probably have that one thing that our grandparents or our parents loved, that they're passionate about, that they get excited about, and they would have loved nothing more than for you to be passionate about that and for you to be excited about that. But at the end of the day, it's just not your thing, right? You can probably think of it. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe it's a hobby. You know, maybe it's uh, a love for crafting or something like that. And it just, it gives them life. But when they invite you into it, nothing, right? We can probably all think of those things. For my grandfather, he would have loved nothing more than for his kids to show chickens, right? If you ask him what heaven is going to be like, it probably looks a lot like the Fort Worth Stockyards. That's what heaven uh, is going to be like for him. And so he tried with my dad, he tried with my aunt, and nothing, right? You know, no love for showing chickens. And so he's got four grandkids. And so, you know, one by one, he tried to pass this love to us to show chickens. He even got us our own, right? We all showed chickens at one point in our life. And for me, absolutely no love for chickens, right? And, you know, I think that hurts him still to this day. But there's one thing that I did like about that process, at least as a little kid. I loved going over to his house during the time when all the incubators were out, right? It was, it was fun. You know, he had the, the eggs and the incubators, and we would come over, and he would always invite us over uh, at the time when the incubators would uh, begin to hatch the eggs. And that was always just a really exciting time uh, as a little kid, you know, enjoying that moment. Uh, with my grandfather. And as we've been going through this series, as we've been thinking about how do we grow, how do our families become places of growth, how is our church a community of growth, that's really the word that has kept coming up in my mind. How do we become an incubation station, right? How do we create an environment that is intentional for the purpose of growth? And Wes has been doing an awesome job uh, going through these, these different characteristics each week that we're trying to add uh, to our families and to our church so that we can be uh, incubators for Christ-likeness. And Kevin read uh, this first, but I'd like to read a section of it again uh, as we dive into our lesson. It says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're going to uh, dive deeper into what does it look like to grow uh, in brotherly affection. Lewis Donaldson, I think, does a good job uh, of helping us unpack the word uh, Philadelphia. And it says, the term Philadelphia is not confined to male-to-male brotherly affection. It refers to the love that binds families and households together. When Christians use the term to refer to love within the community, they import uh, the family context. And so that's really what, uh, you know, the study of this word is about. It, it means how do we uh, love like a family? And if you've been going on and, and looking at this list, you know, each week, you can't help but think that, you know, the items in the list, you know, have some type of progression to them. And, you know, we could talk about whether that was Peter's intent or not for these items to, to build on each other. But, you know, to some level, I, I think that they do. And so, You'll notice that what we add to brotherly affection next week that Wes is going to be talking to us about is love. And, you know, when you think about that, you know, how do we add love to brotherly affection, right? It seems like uh, that's what love is. But for the purpose of these two lessons, we're going to be exploring them as what it means to love within the family. And next week, Wes is going to be talking about uh, what it looks like to love as a family, how we bring 
uh, the love that we share here to our neighborhood, to the people uh, that we interact with at work, to those who we come in contact with uh, on a daily basis. And so we're going to be looking at some scriptures from Peter this morning, and I'm going to do my best just to get out of the way uh, and let Peter do uh, the majority of, of the talking this morning because he has a lot to say uh, on this particular subject. And, you know, there are so many verses about uh, brotherly affection and how we're supposed to live at a church. Uh, we could go so many different places, but for this morning, we're going to try just to stick with uh, words from Peter or uh, stories that involved uh, Peter, and we'll go a little bit broader during our life group uh, time today. Uh, but what's Peter trying to do with his letters? What's he trying to accomplish? And if you were to go to 1 Peter 1.1, you would see he's writing to a people who are scattered, uh, to a people who are looking for family that are looking for home. It says that they're dispersed, they're elect exiles, and there's five different places that he lists uh, where these people are. And so his, his letters are intentional, and they're intentional about you know, communicating a sense. Uh, oh, next slide. Uh, Mark Black describes the context by saying, Peter writes to comfort and encourage faithfulness among Christians who no longer feel at home in their world. Peter wants his readers to remember that their blessings in Christ, both present and future, outweigh suffering. And, and that's the kind of reminder that, that we all need, right? Uh, because as we grow closer together and as we grow more in Christ-likeness each and every day, uh, the world in which we live is going to seem more foreign to us. It's going to seem more not like home. It's going to seem out of place. Uh, and so we're drawn to something more, a more compelling vision of life together. And so we're going to look at kind of three themes that uh, are drawn out of First Peter because they really set the context for what he's doing uh, in Second Peter. And the three themes of Peter's letter, the first of which uh, is worship. And we just sang uh, some beautiful songs about uh, community and, and being a loving community together. And I'm sure uh, it, was, it was a moving experience. It always is when we sing uh, those songs about love because they stir something up uh, within us. But when Peter speaks about worship, it's found in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And he kind of speaks how this is a disposition that we're supposed to have. We are supposed to be those who are constantly uh, worshipful, constantly mindful of what Jesus has done for us. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has come Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It is kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And we think about you know, this reminder that, that Peter is trying to give over and over, he points back uh, to Jesus being the reason for the community that we have. And that may seem like a really uh, simple reminder, uh, but it's the most important reminder. I think that's part of our communion time every week is, is remembering that, you know, we have committed together uh, to living out of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's this salvation uh, that gives the reason why we're here, you know, Otherwise, you know, we might question why we're here. And for me, you know, if we were gathering for 
uh, anything other than being together, I would not be up right now, okay, <laughs> right? Uh, so there are things that draw us together that are bigger than just being in one place at one time. Uh, we're here uh, for a purpose, and so we're called to be a community that is marked by hope, uh, that is steadfast in difficulty, which Wes has talked about in the last couple of weeks, and we're called to be filled with joy, joy that is inexpressible. And sometimes I wonder, you know, what is communicated by our being together? You know, is, is joy something that uh, is obvious? Is joy something that just uh, jumps out to those who come into our midst? Because it's an important marker of what it means to be the community of Jesus. The second theme that is drawn out in, in Peter's letter is the theme of witness. And in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, he sets this witness up in the context of who we are as a chosen uh, people, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we see these three powerful themes there that uh, that we could explore further, this idea of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Uh, but really, they all are tied to this idea of being a people of his own possession. And sometimes when we use the word people, um, you know, in, in our minds, in, in the English usage of the word, uh, we can just kind of use it as a numbering or a, a marking of the fact that there were a bunch of individual persons together, right? That's kind of oftentimes our usage of people. It's just to note that a bunch of individuals came together in one place at a certain time. Uh, but really what this is getting at here is, is not a term of counting or you know, aggregation to show that there's a group. Uh, what he's really getting at is this is a collective that's being, write, being written to, this idea of now we are one person, right? When we say people, we just mean a collective whole. And so when we read this, that we have been a chosen people, he's talking about us, right? He's not talking about us as individuals, which is true, but he's talking about us uh, as one group. And the reason that we're one group is because of the mercy of God. And so he continues, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we've entered into this collective sojourn, this collective exile, and that's to prompt a collective witness. Yes, are we supposed to be mindful of, uh, of what we're doing on a day-to-day -day basis in and of our own interactions? Absolutely, uh, but we're also supposed to see our witness uh, as one uh, joint witness uh, together. And the final theme of, of the letters that is drawn out here, uh, and these are from Kevin Van Hooser, is the idea of wisdom. Uh, we're to be a community that embodies a different set of values, that embodies a different set uh, a different worldview than, than the people around us, and it's going to look uh, markedly different. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. And so over and over we see this redirection uh, away from us uh, and back to Jesus. And even the things that we're called upon to do are as a result of the grace uh, that we've provided. I think that's a great uh, kind of shorthand. Uh, you know, wisdom is kind of a shorthand for being stewards of God's grace, right? Uh, we act in a way that constantly acknowledges the gift uh, that we've received. That is what it means uh, to be people who are wise. And so let's return to our, uh, to our text that we're looking at this morning with this kind of uh, overarching context of what Peter is trying to do. He's trying to encourage them to create this environment of home, to create this environment of loving community uh, that not only draws them to Jesus, but draws them to each other because things around them are difficult. And so he says that we are called by his divine power, that he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us the very precious and great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So what does it mean to, as a group of people, be partakers of the divine nature, right? What does it mean for us to live uh, in a way that uh, is in the same you know, mentality, in the same vein uh, that God lives in community? And it begins with that acknowledgement that we serve uh, a God that is Father, Son, uh, and Holy Spirit. David Benner puts it this way, God willed community because God is community. God exists in relationship. And today at our life group, we're going to look at Philippians 2 and look at uh, that beautiful picture of what that interaction is like uh, and what it draws us to and what uh, our response to knowing how uh, God exists in relationship is supposed to prompt uh, our own relational uh, interactions. But, but for the remainder of our time, I'd like to focus on, uh, on one aspect of, of the Godhead that is so important to uh, our living together in community, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 2 uh, for just a second. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over. Uh, to Acts chapter 2. And if you've got a physical Bible, you'll notice in most of them, uh, there's a subheading that separates uh, the description of community that's at the bottom from the story of Pentecost that's at the top. And these subheadings are really helpful tools most of the time. Uh, you know, they help us remember where things are and we can find things a lot easier because of them. But sometimes we have to be careful uh, that they're not separating something that importantly goes together. Uh, and so sometimes this description of community uh, at the bottom, we read and we love and we see, you know, the way that they're sharing together and the way that they're, you know, truly doing life together. And we're just like, hey, we wish we could do that. And so we try to do it uh, on our own and we try to come up with great programs and different things that uh, will motivate this kind of action. And it always uh, comes up short. Right. And that's because the community that's being seen here is a result uh, of the way that the people are drawing uh, into uh, the Spirit. And so if you've got your Bibles open, verses 1 through 6 sets the scene. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And it divided the tongues of fire as they appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues at the Spirit which gave them utterance. And now there, was, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And so you can try to put yourself in that scene. Uh, imagine how uh, disorienting on its face that would seem. But what we see 
uh, that's actually happening is it's a, a reorienting, uh, a coming together in alignment uh, that is only capable due to uh, the Holy Spirit making it happen. And so, so the reality that is true with all human beings is when we try to just do community by our own will, when we try to just do it uh, by the result of our own resources or our own gifts or our own talents or, uh, you know, our own you know, kind of desire, just our own pure desire to create relationships, uh, it falls short. And that's been true since Genesis. What we see here at Pentecost uh, is really, in many ways, the reverse uh, story of the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis 11, uh, verses 1 through 4, it describes a scene in which humans try to create uh, community. They try to create uh, something great. They try to, you know, create kind of dominion for themselves, uh, purely by themselves, uh, and what results is indeed disastrous. It says, now the whole earth had one language, the same words as the people migrated from the east. They found a plain of land in Shinar, and they settled there, and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of of the whole earth. And so we see the motivation there, right? To create a tower to the heavens, to make a name for themselves, to do things on their own uh, and for their own purposes. And we see that that fails. And we see that they're scattered as a result. And the reality is that sometimes uh, the way that we live in community, when we make it about ourselves, when we make it for ourselves, uh, you know, our time together can, can be akin to building a tower, right? It can be akin uh, to pursuing something uh, that we weren't designed to pursue in a way that we weren't designed to pursue it. And so the only way that this works is by drawing closer to God and allowing uh, His Spirit uh, to bring us together. Stephen Machia puts it this way, In the early church, unity was experienced primarily because of the Holy Spirit's activity among the believing community. Beginning with Pentecost, the unity within the church was possible only through the transformative work of God's Spirit. And if we're going to be unified today, if we're going to live together in community today, the reason is going to be the same. Uh, it's because of the Holy Spirit working in uh, and through us. And so if we were to continue reading down in Acts chapter 2, we see that you know this is the same gift that is bestowed upon us, uh, and it's bestowed upon us you know, for many reasons, but one of which is uh, to be the church that he's called for us uh, to be. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and Peter said, and the rest of the apostles said, brother, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who calls, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so the, the foundation, the formation of, of this group of believers in Jesus you know, comes by not only acknowledging what Jesus has done for them by being baptized, but it comes from uh, receiving his spirit uh, as well. And so those are two important reminders that have to be uh, at the foundation of what we're doing together. It's what Jesus has done for us, and it's also the gift that we've been given uh, that allows us uh, to live as God uh, intends. And so we see that our, our passage that we've been looking through, you know, it states this pretty 
uh, emphatically. 2 Peter 1, verses 8 through 9. If we were to just read on a little further. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And when we read that, we can be like, how could somebody forget uh, what Jesus has done for them? How could somebody forget that we were cleansed uh, from our former sins? But I don't know about you, but uh, you know, a lot of times when, when I get out of line, when I start behaving in a way that is not Christ-honoring, is not uh, you know, living in the way that He has desired for us to live, it's because I've forgotten what Jesus has done uh, for me, right? I turn into uh, that person in the parable who wants to go uh, collect the debts he's owed, even though God, in, in the form of that story in the King, has forgiven uh, the debts of that person so much more. And so what does this look like uh, in practicality? How are, we, how are we supposed to do this? Well, I'd like to offer one uh, kind of simple thought as we come together. And this is, this is not my own. This is borrowed from Ross Cochran, who teaches at Harding, and he's been here uh, for our family conference before. And I've probably used this uh, in some setting before, but it's this really simple uh, diagram. And, and the reality is we could all think of somebody in our lives uh, who probably helped us come to know Jesus, right? Maybe it was your parents, maybe it was uh, a friend, maybe it was a relationship that you were in. Regardless, when we, when we begin to think about our story, our Christian walk, people come to mind. And so mo- for most of us, our Christian walk started like this. Uh, a group of people pointed us uh, to Jesus. But as we grow in Christian maturity, as we grow you know, as committed followers of Jesus, the diagram really has to flip. And we have to start seeing the people that we're with uh, through the cross, uh, and because of, of, of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, because of what he's done for all of us, uh, that drives how we're supposed to live and interact with each other. Because if we you know, put people on a pedestal, if we hold people up as, as people of faith, you know what? We're going to let each other down, right? And we do. Uh, and we hurt each other. And we make mistakes. And, and sometimes that can, can ruin uh, our view of our relationship with Jesus. Uh, and that comes from the fact that we haven't you know, grown in the maturity to know that, that it's Jesus who, who brings us together in the first place. It's Jesus who we're all committing to uh, because we need him. Uh, and sometimes by not making that transition and viewpoint, uh, it becomes difficult to live together uh, in community. And so here's how uh, Ross Cochran explains the diagram. He says, when we develop a vital relationship with Jesus, we are attached to him directly. Our relationship with the church is a result of our relationship to him and not the other way around. We eventually realize that Jesus has not only sent us into all the world, but he has also sent us into his church, right? Uh, That's a part of the grace that we're continually to show to each other uh, as we seek to do uh, daily life uh, together. And so how do we guard against, you know, this becoming something that we forget? Well, uh, as in a lot of areas in our lives, you know, expectations uh, and the way that we view things ultimately ground our experience of them. And that's why you know, I think that diagram is so important. You know, sometimes uh, in daily life, whether it's a personal relationship or, uh, you know, whether it's an experience you're about to go on, you know, if you, if you think you're going to Disney World and, and that whole time you've been looking at everybody's Instagram pictures of Disney and, and you've built up in your mind that this is going to be the greatest trip of all time and we're going to go to Disney and it's going to be perfect and then you get there and it's a family vacation, right? It's not perfect. Um, you know, there's something that uh, that inevitably happens, right? And, and maybe it's an own relationship. You know, sometimes, you know, when, when you first have a, uh, a thought about a girl or a boy and, 
and you begin to build them up in your mind as somebody you want to date. Sometimes you created uh, that image, you know, so great that when you actually begin uh, dating or loving the person, you know, they don't live up to this, you know, this false image that you created uh, in your own mind, right? And we sometimes, you know, put people uh, in situations that are that are not in the reality that we see. And the Bible is very, very honest, right? You read the letters, and sometimes we say we want to be like that church. Well, that church is pretty messed up, right? That church is struggling a lot, and there are things that are going on in that church that that you know often Paul is you know encouraging the people to work through and to grow more in Christ likeness because. Uh, of what's going on. And so we need to realize that Christian brotherhood is not an ideal, uh, which we must realize whether it's a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate, right? This is the first fruits. This is the first fruits of what's going to be the ultimate community, which is going to be in heaven. And it's going to be the type of community that we were designed to experience, to be with God, to be with one another in the way that God intended. But this is just the first fruits. And it's going to be difficult and it's going to be challenging sometimes, but it's a matter of loving each other uh, as Jesus has loved us. And I know at the surface, if you were to say, okay, that it's pretty simple, but it's a lifetime uh, goal that we enter into. It's a lifetime pursuit uh, that we're going through uh, together. And so that, that's really the word that I want to offer uh, this morning. And so we always like to, to give an invitation because that decision to follow Jesus is so important. Uh, it grounds everything that we do here. So at this time, uh, if you would like to put Jesus on in baptism, or we can pray for you, or we can come together uh, around you as a church, please come now as we stand and as we sing.